From New Orleans, welcome to Questions from the Waiting Room, a show that makes uncomfortable concepts easy to talk about. Dr. Nick Pajic, a practicing psychiatrist, will be your host and your guide as we dive deep into the human experience. I had a, uh, a friend in high school or college uh, tell me that she met Bill Clinton and that when he, uh, when he shook her hand, he took his index finger and tickled her palm. Really? Uh-huh. <laughs> she had... Uh, was it Monica? No, she had. She was a brunette, though. Oh, okay. Huh. I probably shouldn't say that here. I'll probably end up like found in some forest <laughs> or something. I guess I will too. Now that I know, <laughs> that sucks. We're doomed together. <laughs> it's all right. We'll leave this for evidence. Uh, if anyone comes looking for us. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's move yeah. on to the personal question. If that's all right with you. A personal question? Yeah. David, every week. I know week, you're not used to it. I know. I'm not. It's hard. I feel vulnerable. This one might make you a little uncomfortable. I feel vulnerable and naked. I hope you don't go there, but go ahead. Ask your question. The personal question. Okay. Do you feel closer to one of your parents over the other? Oh, okay. Uh, I feel probably closer to my mom because my dad survived World War II. And he had a surgical career, uh, which was pretty rough. He went to Vietnam and did some major trauma surgery there. And so it's kind of a less emotionally available. Right. But my mom is uh, kind of like the opposite. She's like very caring and open uh, and connects with each of us. So um, probably my mom. But, you know, as a physician, and my dad being a physician, I feel like uh, there's a special bond there. And we both know what it's like to kind of be in the trenches with patients or be up late, late nights. So I, I, I identify with him um, on that level, you know, like watching him get up in the middle of the night and go to the hospital uh, or not be, not coming home until late. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of like uh, identification with him as a man. And then uh, also like doing things like around the house where, you know, I don't hire people to, to, to work in my house uh, if I don't have to. I like to do a lot of things myself, and that was because he kind of modeled that for me. So there's yeah, like yeah. other psychological things that are make me closer to him. Um, and I'm, and I've all, all all the kids in the family. I'm probably I try to be closer to him uh, psychologically. How many siblings do you have? Five oh, okay. or excuse me, four. Five total. Um, yeah. yeah. So so um, probably because as a psychiatrist, I think I have more interest in his psychology and why he is the way he is. Uh, but he was a great provider, I should say that. Uh, can I ask you a pers- personal question? Yeah, you can ask me literally anything. Anything? Okay. Well, the thing I want to know then is, are you closer to one parent or the other? <laughs> um, I, my answer to that's more of a cop-out, because um, I'm, I'm emotional. I love you, Mom. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. Uh, I'd say, you know, a similar thing. I'm emotionally closer to my mom in some aspects, but then there's certain things I can talk to my dad about that I would not choose to talk to my mom about. Mm-hmm. Um, like chicks? Eh, honestly, I don't know. Mom's, mom's more go-to for the chicks? Yeah, mom might be more go-to. Okay. I don't really talk to either of them about girls. <laughs> but every time I'm on the phone with them, with, with my mom, she'll ask me if I'm dating anyone. But it's almost like a, in a funny way. She's because she's, she knows I'm not. <laughs> really? How does she know you're not? <laughs> no, it's just because I, I never told her I have dated anyone. Really? Yeah, because I haven't recently. We've been, thought, over, we've been over this. We I thought you about had the, the girlfriend in, uh, in high school. In, well, she knew about her. College. Yeah, she knew about her. Yeah. That was high school. Um, 
So I guess more of the rational stuff I'll talk to my dad about, which can still be mm-hmm. emotional. And then the more like real emotional stuff, like if I'm feeling down one day, I'll tell my mom over my dad. My baby's in Nola. <laughs> <laughs> You're on a full on like Marty Gras. Yeah, yeah, I'm flow, going crazy. Like, <laughs> pounding the beta ambers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other side of the ago. screen, it's my mom just crying. <laughs> Your mom's crying there. Wow, that's really sad. David, why don't you come home? Call your mother. <laughs> well, so, all right. So, Dr. Nick, did anything intriguing happen to you this past week? Uh, not too much, but um, I'm in training for this uh, coaching that I'm doing, and I've been recording sessions between me and uh, my assistant and uh, doing some coaching with him. And my coach uh, scolded me because I went out of bounds and I went into uh, more psychiatrist mode where being a coach is more of a facilitator of someone's thinking or their thought right. rather than advising them or, uh, you know, more than that. So um, it's interesting to kind of get out of your one way of thinking that you're so fixed in thinking and challenging the way you think. Uh, but I think it's healthy because it's kind of caused me to reevaluate boundaries with you know folks whereas my patients the boundaries a little bit closer in terms of them psychologically whereas as a coach i'm a little bit more removed and um i'm you know i just i'm a facilitator so that's uh something that i, I thought was kind of interesting yeah is it similar to learning another language or speaking another language and saying something in english that you meant to say in french um, like when you're counseling them because you have oh. your psychiatrist mindset and then you have your coach mindset it, no, it's it's kind of like more like if you're skiing. I hate to follow your metaphor with another metaphor, but whatever, man. If you're skiing and like you know they have the line where they say don't ski out out, out of these bounds. Mm-hmm. I kind of felt like I was going out of bounds a bit. Okay. Within the guidelines of coaching, because um, coaching you're dealing with a lot of high functioning people who have a lot of data about their businesses and their lives, but they just can't. Uh, complete some goals because they haven't thought it out all the way and they haven't had any active inquiry to get there. So the role of a coach is to do that. And it's kind of, I guess, wearing a different hat. Roles of a psychiatrist is doing a really thorough initial exam, um, collecting uh, symptoms and symptom clusters and the pattern of all these symptoms and then understanding all these medical history um, and then synthesizing it all together and you know, and f- formulating a treatment plan. Coaching is a little more hands-off than that. Okay. And so I'm not used to being as hands-off because I'm dealing with so many, uh, you know, patients in, in need. Yeah. Uh, what about yourself? Anything interesting going on in your world? I'd say the most interesting thing that happened in the last few because I got a haircut. You got um, a haircut? So not too much. Although it was kind of a different haircut because they kept it really... It was like one of those new millennial haircuts yeah, where they keep it long cut. on the top and then like not shave the sides, but keep the sides really short. Yeah. And so I, I realized the other day when I was, I don't really comb my hair, but I just kind of style it to the right with mm-hmm. my hand, that when I take the, the front of it, like with the bangs, mm-hmm. they come down all the way to like below my eyeball. Really? Yeah, which is really weird. Because usually when I get a haircut, it's all really short. So let's talk about the millennial shave side of the head. The thing. new cut, yeah. So what's up with that? Like. Uh, is I, this from Mick, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, that uh, music <laughs> guy? Mick Wardner. No, not Mick Wardner. That's our dude. <laughs> That's our music producing guy. No, um, the guy sings about um, 
G-Eazy? Uh, at the cop shop, no, no, the, of the thrift store, that guy. Oh, Macklemore. Macklemore. He, yeah. Was he one of the first ones who had a shave size? Yeah, his okay. cut's pretty similar to that, yeah. So did he set, is this, is who this, set the tone? or is he like this New York City, like people are starting to do it? I saw like some music video with a girl with a shaved side of their head. and Yeah, the girls are doing it too. Yeah, I don't really, I don't know what started it. But I think it's, it's an attractive trend. I think that's probably why it happened. We like finally maybe. have a, tra- a trend that's actually kind of neat. Yeah, exactly. Like, people actually look better. It's it's a sharp look because mm-hmm. the sides are cut short. But then it's also a creative look because you can do more stuff with, like, the top of your hair. Right. Maybe it was influenced by the old bowl cut. The old bowl cut, huh? Yeah, because that used to be that what you got made fun of as a kid. Well, who's that singer um, who's on The Voice or one of those things who has a shaved side of the head? head? Adam Levine. Is that it? Yeah, I should know this. You should. You're a millennial, man. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I'm still in my Billy Corgan phase of the Smashing Pumpkins. I like to drop his name now and again. Yeah, you gotta drop it yeah, so people know. Do it. You know, people need to know. Um, but I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I'll talk about Smashing Pumpkins all day. <laughs> and please keep that part of the podcast if you can. I'll keep it. Yeah. Decided to drop the name Smashing Pumpkins yeah. for the third time. I'm just going to put in Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> randomly throughout the randomly podcast. It. Like a subliminal just message. Just like Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> Bring your head against the wall, Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> the killer in me is killing. All right. All right. All right. Now we have a sound bite. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Okay now. All right. The first question from the waiting room. During the last couple of months, my mind has been plagued with intrusive thoughts all of which have been very unsettling. Recently, every time I leave the house, I can't stop wondering if I turn the stove off or not. I will leave work to check four or five times a day, even though I know I turned it off. Do I have some sort of issue going on? Why did this just start in the last couple of months? Well, um, it makes me think of obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, and folks who have that have an intrusive thought itself that that impels them to do a behavior uh, often. So there's obsessions and then there's compulsions. And so this is can be, the, like she said, or he said, plaguing, uh, because you can't get it out of your mind. So it's a repetitive like thought loop. And oftentimes uh, folks uh, have, you know, are anxious people to begin with, but then it takes on this other form where they're, they're, an- they're, they're anxious about this thought that they can't get out of their mind, but it's not like, oh, I gotta pay my taxes or I'm gonna be late for work. Uh, their anxiety is manifested by this obsessive thinking itself. And that's when you call obsessive compulsive disorder. And so sometimes people have it with germs. They worry about germs being everywhere. Um, they have to uh, lock doors repetitively. Like, you know, they have rules, so kind of ritualistic behaviors. Um, there's a I've heard stories about patient who burned themselves with a curling iron by accident on one arm and then had such symmetrical kind of obsessions, they had to burn themselves on the other arm. Imagine that. So that that really puts it into perspective. And uh, so for this person, if they're they're doing this behavior more than like an hour a day where it's like bothering them, they're thinking of these thoughts, then um, that's technically in the obsessive compulsive disorder range. And um, there can be medications you can take for that to diminish it or alleviate it. There's also a cognitive behavioral therapy and like workbooks you can work on. So also there's um, obsessive compulsive personality disorder or obsessive style of thinking where a lot of physicians and attorneys and people and uh, like accountants probably have that where uh, they're fastidious and um, they're perfectionistic. They follow rules, they're kind of rigid 
Uh, I've, I have a tinge of this. My parents would laugh and say that. Um, but it's not actually obsessive compulsive disorder, which is when you have specific thought loops that bother you. Right. Uh, a personality disorder, obsessive compulsive wise, is kind of more uh, pervasive through uh, one's thinking. What was happening to you, though, when your parents kind of used to laugh at it? Oh, no. Well, I have some, um, you know, perfectionist perfectionism and um, rigid, rigid style. Uh, things have to be a certain way, like food. I wouldn't want food to touch, certain foods to touch when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And as I've gotten older, uh, I've been, you know, living in New Orleans, you kind of have to eat. <laughs> you know I mean, I love eating out here. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I still don't like the consistency of certain foods, um, which may not be obsessive compulsive personality per se, but um, I don't also like the clothing that I wear. Sometimes if it doesn't feel right, uh, the fabric. Mm -hmm. it, it bothers me. I know yeah. it's a stupid thing. No, I get that for sure. Yeah, and I usually wear the same type of suit every day, so I don't have to think too much about it. And it's kind of like you know, it's gonna feel predictable, good. right? Yeah, right. Because if it's not, uh, I tell you, there's been times when I forgot to wear a belt with my suit to work. Oh, I was just rushing all the time. Oh, I hate that. It that sucks because your pants are on, like, your around your yeah, knees. Yeah, you look like some <laughs> like an idiot. idiot. Yeah. Like, how are you doing, folks? And you got no belt on, and you're like, you're supposed uh, to be this professional guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So we, then it bothers me and I'm like preoccupied with it, so I should probably go talk to someone about that. Yeah, probably. Alright, so the second question from the waiting room. I'm a sophomore in college and I've felt depressed since the end of freshman year. My antidepressants don't seem to be working. I started taking Lexapro about four months ago and at first I felt really good. I think this was maybe a placebo effect of beginning a medication that might actually make me feel better. But after about a week, I went back to feeling dreadful. I never want to go out with friends and they usually get annoyed with me for just wanting to stay in bed. And then I feel anxious I'm missing out but feel confined to my room. What do you think I should do? Okay, well, Lexapro is an antidepressant and it's an anti-anxiety medication as well. And the person's right. You can, ha you can have a placebo response to something pretty rapidly. Uh, there's something called flight into health where somebody gets well really quickly but it's really just their psychology jumping forward rather than the medicine's really working. Typically, if I see somebody responding to an antidepressant really quickly, it do doesn't always mean that it's um, the medicine working. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it can be, but I'm really looking for the prolonged response. Antidepressants can take you know two to six weeks to kick in, depending on what dose they're at. And the reasons for that are compl complex, but the gist of it is that you're changing the DNA in your neurons uh, and having your DNA manufacture other chemicals, and that process takes a while to do uh, and, and to really change the nerve. Um, and we think that the antidepressants we use work, work indirectly. They're not like a direct fix per se. So there are new medications that are coming on, uh, on board or that we're learning about like ketamine and ketamine um, metabolites um, that actually reverse depression more quickly in some people. And then... Um, there's a um, brain-derived uh, neurotrophic factor that we think is one of the cornerstones of um, neuroplasticity, and that neuroplasticity is kind of uh, how well your brain can connect and uh, form new thoughts, new patterns of thinking. Right. Um, and then you, uh, and you have uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which I do here at the office, which is using a real powerful magnet, really specifically in your brain, to get the brain to change. Um, and to uh, kind of come back online and begin to work again without taking medications. 
So for this person, I would say that, well, the medication's most li not likely not working. Um, they, would, they should talk to their doctor, obviously, about it. Uh, and usually what I do is if, the, if I increase the medication, sometimes that helps and kind of gets the person where they need to be or you switch to a different agent and you have a closer follow-up than four months. Like if I had a patient, if I started him on a medication, I usually want to see him between two and four weeks after that. Okay, so the third question from the waiting room. Recently, I've started to cry during sex with my partner and we've had to stop. I was sexually abused as a kid, but I've never really been affected until now. Why did it take this long to impact my life? Wow, well, I feel for that person that's a difficult situation. Um, sexual abuse is traumatic because um, it's confusing to a child. There's conflicting emotions that you have. And when you're a kid and you're vulnerable and you have adults that are supposed to protect you and someone it violates you in that way, um, that's you know, very disturbing. And uh, a lot of sexual abuse survivors uh, have kind of a fear response and a lot of shame around sex. And when you're a kid, and you can't protect yourself, you end up psychologically kind of creating a safe space for, for yourself to go while some kind of abuse is taking place. So while that happens, as that kid child becomes an adolescent and an adult, they haven't dealt with that uh, kernel of abuse that had happened to them, and they kind of isolate that abuse off. Yet during sex, it probably triggering the past abuse where it's forcing the person to kind of bring up those memories in a, in a sense, especially if they're not used to you know, being a sexual person and seeing sex as a healthy thing. I think people who have been uh, sexually abused have trouble incorporating it as a sexual, normal human behavior, you know. So that may be one, one reason why it's happening now is that she's engaging in an activity where it's triggering this from the past. Some people have post-traumatic stress disorder from past sexual abuse, um, like I said, shame. So why it's happening now, sometimes folks who are with a partner you know, if, they, if they've had sex with people in the past and they were using intoxicants or something uh, to help facilitate sex, uh, that, that could be a reason. I mean, I don't know this person, but just kind of things I'm thinking about. Um, perhaps it's more they want to be more intimate with this person and really emotionally connect because they like them a lot um, and in, in trying to do so that it's emerging. So it's hard to say just by hearing the question, you know. Well, I just don't want to make any assumptions, I guess. But Yeah, for sure. For this type of person, I would probably um, seek out uh, a therapist for certain and uh, to uh, do some more more intensive work, like once a week work on that past abuse. Yeah. You know, plus anything else that's going on in their lives. Um, and also to tell their partner that it's not the partner's fault, that yeah, they just have to work important. through some things. Yeah. So. All right. Psyched fact of the day. Well, this is not a statistic, but uh, Winston Churchill was depressed. Uh, his daughter com completed suicide and had depression. Uh, he himself probably had bipolar disorder. Um, he was described as being like hyperthymic, um, which is in, like an elevated personality, but also followed by really dark spells where he was depressed for many days or months in a row. And he used, to, he used to call his depression the black dog. Um, he, he used to drink a lot too. He would wake up in the morning and like with breakfast to have cocktails and then at lunch have cocktails and there's like a champagne hour and then you know whiskey and then well into the evening he would drink. So he 
he drank and a lot of folks with bipolar disorder will quell their moods with uh, alcohol. I can't imagine he ever took a mood stabilizer. That was probably well before we really started treating bipolar disorder with medications, effective medications. Uh, Winston Churchill, even at the height of his popularity, he, he himself thought he was a failure. And it's interesting too, because when he was manic uh, and really kind of sped up, he wrote uh, several volumes of work and uh, I think received a Nobel uh, Prize for lit in literature as well. Very interesting guy, fascinating person, suffered a lot. So that's our kind of psych fact of the day. All right, and our quote of the day, or positive thought of the day, is from Barbara Kingsolver. The quote is, the very least you can do in your life is to figure out what you hope for. And the most you can do is live inside that hope. Not admire it from the distance, but live right in it under its roof. Right now, I'm living in that hope, running down its hallway and touching the walls on both sides. Barbara Kingsolver. I don't know who that is, but I really like that quote. All right. Peace out, America. All right. Farewell, folks. Farewell, folks. I like that. It's probably better, more appropriate. Thanks for listening to this session of Questions from the Waiting Room. If you have a question or comment for us to discuss on the show, then email show at atlaspsychiatry.com. If you'd like to learn more about your hosts, Dr. Nick Pajic or David Miller, listen to other shows, or to consult Dr. Pajic for a mental health issue, then visit www.atlaspsychiatry.com. Music production is done by McWordna. To hear more of his work, visit the link in the description. Questions from the Waiting Room is committed to destigmatizing mental health issues and providing psychiatric education to our listeners. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in-store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in-store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.